Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is supported by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 20% of website sales to the Trussell Trust, who are supporting food banks around the UK. Alighieri is also offering 10% off the Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. A quanto a dir qual era e cosa dura questa selva selvaggia e aspre forte che nel pensier rinnova la paura. The first canto of the Divine Comedy. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the right path was obscured. Ah, oh, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. In this opening of the Divine Comedy, Dante describes the Selva Oscura, the dark wood, as being this place where he is intertwined in the branches and the darkness and the despair. And it's that situation that he needs to get himself out of. The Selva Oscura Choker is a piece that I made really inspired by this dark wood. Each link is almost like one of those branches intertwining with the next to create this sort of labyrinth of a piece. And by wearing it, I hope that it reminds you that we all sometimes find ourselves in this dark wood, but that we do have the means and the strength and courage to find our way out. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that today on the Great Women Artists podcast, we are talking to one of the most widely acclaimed writers and critics in the world, the brilliant <laughs> Olivia Lang. <laughs> The author of some of my favourite books, including To the River, The Trip to Echo Spring and the Sunday Times bestseller novel Crudo, Olivia is also the author of The Lonely City, which explores artists' loneliness in New York City and is, I think, one of the most powerful non-fiction books out there in the world. A fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and awarded the Wyndham Campbell Prize for nonfiction in 2018, Olivia's writing about art and culture has appeared in The Guardian, Financial Times and Freeze, among many others. But I'm so excited to say that she has just published an outstanding and very timely collection of essays titled Funny Weather, 
Art in an Emergency, which features in-depth essays about artists' lives from Derek Jarman to George O'Keefe, love letters to the likes of David Bowie, her encounters and friendships with Chantal Joffe and Sarah Lucas, and many more. Writing in the book, she says, We are so often told that art can't really change anything, but I think it can. It shapes our ethical landscapes. It opens us to the interior lives of others. It is a training ground for possibility. It makes plain inequalities and it offers other ways of living. Olivia Lang, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very flattered by that very kind introduction. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honour. So this episode is going to be slightly different to others because Olivia, who is very much an artist in her own right, one of the greatest writers working today, has very excitingly selected three female artists to talk about. The painter Chantal Joffe and sculptor, photographer, installation artist Sarah Lucas, both of whom feature in Funny Weather, as well as the great Cuban-American feminist performance artist Anna Mendieta, who will feature in your upcoming book, Everybody, About Bodies and freedom. But before we delve into these artists' lives and works, I just want to start by asking you, because I am just continuously moved by your writing and your constant quest to explore artists from the past and present in these such intimate and raw ways. I just want to start by asking you, what attracts you to writing about the lives of artists so much? Gosh, that's a good question. I think the first thing that attracts me is work, the works. If I see something that I find beautiful or troubling, if I'm moved by a work, then I want to know more about it. I want to know more about how it arose into the world and what sort of conditions it arose out of. So it's sort of a puzzle to me the the idea that the artwork exists from a life and into a life is what excites me most. It's sort of its roots back into an individual's life and then how it reaches out and flowers into the viewer's life, the reader's life, potentially hundreds of years later. Yeah, definitely. I think what I found so powerful about your book at the moment, especially at this time, was actually looking at how much artwork can just resonate in a sort of timeless quality. I don't know, you think of a, a George O'Keefe or even something like a Louise Bourgeois and you think of her cell works and you think, oh my mm. gosh, that almost encapsulates what we're living in now in a strange way. They are so timely. It's really interesting, <laughs> almost sort of making a mental list of the works that suddenly resonates in a new way. That The cell works are definitely one of them. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I think that's what's the kind of power of it completely. But I love the line in Chantal's essay in particular where you say, you know, we both use portraiture as a way of getting at something deeper what do you think that you're trying to kind of uncover by looking at specifically that artist's life reality for a start and then really it's something to do with I write about these fairly dark themes I write about things like loneliness I write about sexuality a lot I write about addiction and it's trying to understand how those forces which we can think of in quite abstract terms actually impact real people and how they can be resisted. And the best way for me to do that, it seems, is to use these sort of biographical stories as a way of investigating things that otherwise would be really abstract questions. I don't think they are mm. abstract questions. I think they're always lived in real terms. And for me as a writer, the way I want to do that is to find people who have had fascinating lives, compelling lives, people who are very articulate about talking about them, or inarticulate in interesting ways, and people who've made work and lived in ways that I can really describe. I want rich material. That's what I'm out for. You know, I'm yeah. sort of prowling around looking for riches. And painters often particularly are 
very generous with those sort of riches. There's a lot <laughs> of material to play with. There's a lot of sort of actual tactile physical objects that I can work with. So yeah. I'm using them to sort of convey ideas and emotions, but at the same time, they have their own material reality too. Yeah, I guess what's so extraordinary, because I mean, in a way, this podcast is all about, yes, uncovering the work, but also looking at the lives. And I guess when someone is an artist or a writer, it's very exposing. In a way, they're quite vulnerable. They're putting themselves out there in a kind of form of a media. They're not a kind of human or physical presence. It's like a different presence in a way. And at the same time, artists are very good at hiding. They're producing some sort of front all the time. And I think that relationship is very interesting between the perhaps vulnerable or troubled personal life and the production of these you know, finished, beautiful, gleaming objects that go out into the world. Yeah. So that, that kind of conversation that's going on between visibility and invisibility is what I'm fascinated by. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to sort of uncover, but at the same time, not just go, let's reveal everything in some sort of schlocky, cheap biographer yeah. way. It's more about how does A lead to B? How yeah. do those two things relate? Totally, the motivations. But also it's so interesting because in a way, these works that are full of kind of messiness in a weird way mm. are then preserved in these jewel-like boxes, which are galleries. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of, <laughs> that oddity is really, and it's interesting, I think I spend much more time in the archive than the gallery. And as a collection of art writing, it's interesting how rarely I'm in a gallery, that that yeah. isn't my favourite space for viewing things or for thinking about art. In some ways, I'd almost rather be in a library looking at pictures and handling an object than the sort of rarefied domain. I mean, sometimes I do, but it isn't just about that. It's about the idea of a real person producing something in a real studio. The, the sort of sense of something being made in front of you excites me much more than here is the object hanging on the wall. And it has a value and it has a price and it has a history to it. That sort of side of the art world doesn't excite me particularly at all. No, absolutely. I love uncovering everything to do with lives and everything. But I just want to ask you as well, you write so beautifully about Derek Jarman. One of my favourite chapters in your book is about Derek Jarman and you and your sister Kitty just kind of watching the TV growing up. Because what I love about the power of television and artists who interact with it is the fact that they can reach any audience. You don't have to necessarily be in a city with a yeah. gallery and a yeah. museum. It can reach waves beyond that. And was art always something that you were interested growing up in? Yeah, I definitely was. I mean, I grew up in a gay family in the 1980s and definitely had access to interesting art. But at the same time, it's so funny thinking about TV in those days, the sort of Channel yeah. 4 lates arena, this idea that if you turned on the television late at night, and sometimes we'd be like sneaking downstairs to watch something that we knew we weren't <laughs> supposed to. Um, we lived in a fairly permissive household, but there were limits. <laughs> but you could just suddenly see that there was a whole other world. And I, it's interesting. I've talked to so many people of my generation who experienced Derek Charman like that. They weren't old enough to be part of his circle. They were slightly younger. And suddenly there he was on television, hilarious, passionate, irreverent. And you just thought, bloody hell, there's this world and there's this idea of art making and being an artist that isn't about, it's about being antagonistic. It's about being wicked in some way. It's about reporting on reality and political realities in an incredibly courageous way. And that felt so exciting to me. No, absolutely. I think it's so interesting as well. Just these, you know, few channels that were offered to you then as well. I mean, I grew up in the sort of 90s and noughties and we didn't really have channels up until about 10 years ago. But uh, just who those people were who were kind of feeding you that knowledge as well. You really kind of 
got to know them as well and got in touch with their idea of what art could be as well. And also, I think you had to work so hard to get information in those days. I find it almost impossible to remember like <laughs> what you did before Google, but you bought the face or you bought ID and you bought time out and you saw an advert for some exhibition that you were desperate to see and you persuaded your parents to let you. And this sort of sense of having to hunt things down, find clues, follow things up. I think that really stayed with me as, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic. I've come from it from a very different angle and that sort of sense of being a detective and of searching out things that felt very precious to me but occluded and hidden has really stayed with me throughout my working life. Do you find that you're still because I love that bit as a I think it might be in the Derek Darwin chapter as well when you say that you're trying to find his grave but you really (laughs) don't want to succumb to the iPhone because it's kind of almost giving in to something that it's not part of his world in a way. It's not part of his world and it's so easy just google it and there it is and there was something about feeling like (laughs) and I failed but I really wanted to remember there are a lot of churches around there it was weird I mean I did go to three churches and I was like Derek is not here where is he? And then when did you sort of first become interested in writing about artists? Because I mean, originally, you're a sort of literary critic. Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote To the River, which is very much about Virginia Woolf. And then I wrote The Trip to Echo Spring, which is about a set of male American big swinging dick writers. And it's (laughs) about, yeah, they really are, though. (laughs) Not all of them. John Cheever's not. So that was about alcohol and literature. And that book was deranging to write. You know, they're alcoholics and they're storytellers. They're professional liars on so many levels. And there was something about sort of dredging through their fiction and picking out all of these falsehoods that just made me feel like I was in a horrible hall of mirrors. It was so disturbing to write. Yeah. And around that time, I'd moved to New York and my friends, my community were mostly visual artists. And I think I just sort of fell into it and realised that... I could be writing about images, I could be writing about objects, and the relationship between my writing and the object is totally different to writing about writing. And it was a revelation. I think that's where my writing really kind of takes off, is realising that there's something different I can be doing with it. Yeah, absolutely. I also love the way that you analyse artists as well, the way that they look. I don't know, that, that sort of section in The Lonely City where you're talking about Warhol always kind of hiding behind his camera I mean it's so scarily relevant to what we're looking at today in the the world that we live in but just you kind of encompass the whole essence of that artist as well I think that also came out of this moment that I was writing that book I suppose 2010 2012 something like that living in New York and it really was the moment where smartphone usage just changed almost overnight that people were suddenly on the subway on their phones they were in bars on tinder and that made me see Warhol in a different way but hang on he's using all of these devices the Bolex camera the Super 8 the little recording device in exactly the same way as a way to sort of lure people in but also ward people off don't come too close I'm busy I'm engaged with my machine so that was happenstance in a way I work a lot by happenstance and that possessiveness in a way I mean it's it's so interesting I mean we're gonna get onto Chantal Joffin in a second but I mean Chantal is the, the loveliest person in the world but it's so interesting someone almost kind of owning that image of you and their perception of it yeah absolutely it's such a negotiation all the time between the I mean the artist people call Warhol a vampire and I think that's true of all artists artists are vampires they're out to get blood they really want to have the essence of people and it's always a strange negotiation I think when you're writing about somebody there's always got to be your own sense of ethical precepts and at the same time some sort of 
fairly repulsive greed and curiosity drives you. <laughs> totally. You're essentially kind of analysing and scrutinising your every subject. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really one of the reasons that I use memoir. I'm not particularly a fan of writing memoir, but it always feels like it's kind of a fair exchange. If I'm going to expose these things about my subjects, I really should lay some things down about myself as well. It shouldn't be a kind of one way transaction. There should be some sense that I'm taking a risk too, rather than just stripping them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I want to go back to the portraits because I know that you've sat for Chantelle a number of times uh, and you've also written about sitting for her, but also written a beautiful essay in this book. I'd just love to start by asking you, how did you kind of come to meet someone like Chantelle Joffe? She wrote me a fan letter. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Do really? you not know this story? Oh my God, this no. is a great story. <laughs> so she hasn't told me this. <laughs> she sent me an email, a very shy, very Chantelle-ish email saying, I love The Lonely City, I'd like to paint you. It was really, I mean, it, there wasn't much detail to it. It was quite sort of, here you go. And, yeah. you know, normally I would kind of go, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> you sound weird. <laughs> but I looked at her paintings I wasn't familiar with her work beforehand and I looked at her paintings and I just immediately wrote back and said yes great I'll I'll come over feeling sort of excited about the idea gratified about the idea of somebody wanting to paint me and then almost the minute I walked through the door we became friends it was just an instant sense of recognition you know we both think very fast we work very fast and I think I definitely have a feeling that people can't keep up with how fast I'm thinking sometimes and Chantel always can (laughs) she can hit back every ball it's a joy to spend time with her and to just talk and talk and talk and talk while she's painting and painting and painting and it's been just an incredible sustaining I mean she's one of the closest people to me now and it came out of such a sort of strange way of meeting yeah yeah it's a very modern way of meeting as well. I feel like, you know... Is it, you know, isn't it very old-fashioned? Yeah. <laughs> it feels very Victorian. But I mean, I meet so many people sort of through Instagram and then we meet up. I feel like maybe, I don't know, because I wasn't around, but nowadays it's very normal just to kind of ask someone to meet up. And I think there's before. something <laughs> of it being like a Victorian person who's read a book and writes a little note saying, I yeah. would like to call on you. That's more what it felt like to me. Like, gosh, okay, let's do this. Yeah. And so when the first time you met her, was that when she painted you first? Or did you just talk? No, she painted me. And then we got to know each other while she was painting me. I think it took a while before we started doing other things outside of the studio. I've written about this, but it was such a disconcerting process because, you know, it's terrifying being painted. Yeah. It's really exposing. It's really a risk. And we're so accustomed to being photographed. We're in a moment where we're constantly taking photos of each other. So we're accustomed to posing and arranging ourselves and painting isn't about that. And sort of gradually, I used to be a life model for years and years in my teens and early 20s. So I was used to sitting, but actually being looked at like that. I mean, Chantelle is one of the great lookers. And yeah, that was an uncanny process. Well, you've sat for her, so you know you know what it's like. yeah. It's bizarre because I think what's so surreal is the fact that you're just talking to someone. I mean, probably like you, I, I spoke to her the entire time. I probably asked her about 100 questions. It probably wasn't very helpful. But, you know, there's someone in front of you with this almost kind of like setup, and you can't see what they're creating. And then when you see the actual thing, it's you can't quite believe that this person has created that whilst you've just been standing there. Yeah. Yeah. 
I know, and it often seems like she's not moving her brushes at all. She's just talking. Yeah. And then at the end of two hours, there is a painter. It's, yeah. it, that's what I mean. It really is an uncanny process. I sat for her with my mum a couple of times as oh, well. Wow. And that was incredible. And my mum's dog, we put on <laughs> the outfits we wore for my wedding. And that, oh, yes, it, there was something that. so lovely about it. It was so sort of touching. But again, that those paintings felt like they caught so much about the relationship between me and my mother, they felt like she'd seen something. It's eerie. I don't know even how to put it into words. It's an eerie process watching somebody do that. Yeah. How do you think her portraits capture this idea of reality in a way? What did you see that she saw in you? I think it's more that she sees a changing self. Yeah. Every painting she does, I mean, every painting she does of her sister Nat, every painting of her daughter Ez, every painting of her mother, it's them. But it's them completely differently. It's very Virginia Woolf, the sense of somebody being so fluid through time and history, somebody moving so sinuously into different selves. I think that's the thing that she's great at catching. It's not like a finished reality of there is that person, like maybe somebody like Lucian Freud does. Yeah. It's much more that person in that moment, on this day, in this place, there and they've gone they've vanished that's the other thing that's so strange about it is the self has flown again she caught something and then it's gone yeah no I think that's so interesting and just the fact that someone can capture that snapshot and I'm interested because like you mentioned earlier you wrote for her when she was actually painting you and I want to know what did you find the difference was between kind of painting portraits but then also in a way writing a portrait of someone there is one very clear difference, which is that you can't talk and write at the same time. <laughs> it was much harder for me than her. <laughs> she can just wave her brushes around. I really need somebody to be quiet. <laughs> and also I was trying to sort of take down dictation of what yeah. we were saying. I'm not a very fast typist. <laughs> it was really hard. So you- I did have to finish it on the train. <laughs> So you didn't actually just record the conversation, you were actually typing whilst that was happening? Yeah, my laptop was on my lap and I was just kind of hammering away, trying to describe the situation, trying to sort of catch what it felt like, trying to catch some of the phrases yeah. she was... I mean, it was impossible. <laughs> All she had to do was paint my face. <laughs> but I mean, it's been so interesting kind of watching your evolution since you wrote that beautiful essay for the Lowry catalogue and everything. And I, I should mention, I also work at Victoria Miro, so I've kind of experienced a lot of it. But one of the most incredible bodies of work, I think, and you mentioned this in Funny Weather, was her incredible, very broad and extensive project where she painted herself every day as self-portraits. I mean, what did this reveal for you? I mean, how was that to see someone you knew paint themselves in such a way? They were painful to see at the time. So this was a project that she did over 2018. So she was painting herself each day after a long-term relationship had broken up. And I remember going to the studio, you know, periodically and seeing these sort of excoriating paintings of this anxious, hunched-over person over and over again. I mean, she was looking at herself with such ruthlessness. And I think one of the things with Strontel is, she really looks at her sitters with love. She loves them. But yeah. she was looking at herself with really, really exacting, cold, Alice Neal at her chilliest sort yeah. of vision. You know, where you're just like, whoa, that hurts. Yeah. You're stripping. That's painful. Yeah. But what was amazing, and this is sort of what I was trying to say earlier, is the paintings were being left behind and she was moving on. 
these faces were sort of there in the studio, like shed skins. There they were, one more, one more. And she was getting kind of lighter and freer and happier. And that show was extraordinary because she, my husband and I all went to the Bonnard show together. And she went home from that and she painted the last painting in the show, which is absolutely different. It's this incredibly composed, beautiful version of herself. Her neck is very long. She looks absolutely in command, at ease, but in command. It's powerful. It's a very different painting to any of the others. And that was the end. That was the full stop. So seeing somebody sort of chart this evolution was a way, you know, depression is something you get stuck in. And she'd found a way to not get stuck, to really look at it moment by moment. And again, this is a very Virginia Woolf thing. Once you start looking at the moment, you realise that it's in constant flux. And that's so Mm. exciting. And that's so freeing. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, you know, she started this body of work on January the 1st. And just also just to see how the evolution of the self with also the evolution of the seasons, it was very beautiful and how the light would get lighter. You know, you'd have those early works in January and February, which were kind of taken with hoods in the pitch black at 4pm and just feel so trapped and everything's contracted and how you feel with the days just being so short in that early time. Yeah, I think they're really amazing. I think they're one of those works that actually, as time moves on, people will look back and think that was a really extraordinary project and body of work. It's always difficult with women's self-portraits, isn't it? And I'm sure this is something that comes up in your podcast a lot. That yeah. It's so caught up in, is this narcissistic? Is this self-involved? It's the same with women's writing about themselves, women's memoir, women's autofiction. And yet, as you move away in time, you start to see, well, no, this is a very serious work. This is a less serious work. And I think that series of portraits is an incredibly serious work and almost a profound work. Yeah. It was so interesting. I don't know if you saw last summer at the Royal Academy, uh, an exhibition by Helen Schnerfbeck, who was this Finnish artist. No, who I was regret working missing in... that. Oh, no! <laughs> but she, there was this incredible room and I, was, I spoke to Chantal quite a lot about it. And it was just this really small room, but it had about, oh, I don't know, maybe about 40 self-portraits from when she was 22 up until about her 80s. And what was so interesting it wasn't just the kind of evolution of her life and the sort of deterioration with age, but it was kind of looking at, okay, the 1880s up until about the 1940s yeah. and 50s and, yeah. that, and that kind of breakaway into abstraction, into sort of shattering of the canvas. I think self-portraits can reveal so much, not just yeah. about someone, but what they're going through or what, what's happening in the world. Yeah, they catch history as well. Yeah. And Chantal's also someone who, you know, is a ridiculously brilliant painter, but the way that she captures women's bodies is kind of very honest. And, you know, I think it's not so much the female gaze, it's not really a term, but in the same way that kind of mm. Alice Neal paints people, I guess it's it's very truthful. There's a lot of honesty there. I mean, Chantal's not <laughs> evil and scrutinizes her sitters, but she does kind of capture women's bodies for what they are. And I just wanted to know your kind of thoughts on that. I think that's really true. But also, I think the Alice Neal comparison is really true. I remember seeing a show in New York a couple of summers ago where there was a painting of the sex worker and theorist Annie Sprinkle, and it's the most extraordinary painting. She's in a dominatrix outfit, and in some ways she looks repulsive. She's quite old, and in some ways she looks just magnificent, like completely magnificent. And I feel like there is no one on earth, except possibly Chantelle, who could have painted that painting and not made it seem sort of tawdry or weird. It just feels like here is another body. Looking with that sort of equanimity is such a gift. And I think Chantelle has that too. 
she's always just looking at what's there. Obviously, she has ideas of what's beautiful, but she's not laying that onto the sitter in a way that most women's bodies are constantly experiencing most of the time. You're sort of free from that. You're being looked at by somebody who is affectionately interested in the form you inhabit and not what you're not living up to. So that feels very liberating. Yeah, which leads me then on to someone like Sarah Lucas, who plays with bodies in a completely different way. I guess what's interesting is that the artists who we're talking about today, actually, they use the body and their art so much, and it's from a female perspective. And there is so much, even though someone like Sarah Lucas is stripping the body down to its bare minimum and kind of exposing it and just putting it out on this plate, reducing these elements to these weird kind of still life objects there is so much kind of ownership how do you find that Sarah Lucas portrays the body in a very different way to Chantal? Sorry I was just looking before we spoke at the catalogue for um, Ice Cream Daddio the show that she did at the Venice British Pavilion oh yes and it's ecstatic it's incredible so she made (laughs) plaster casts of women that she really loved women that she was really close to and they're really I mean they're their genitals they're their bums it's really graphic and at the same time it's so playful and sensual and there are loads of photos of her sort of slathering the plaster on (laughs) and then she gets loads of eggs I mean it was such an amazing show (laughs) smashing up eggs goes down to the rocks in Italy somewhere and arranges these eggs in a cock and balls and then smashes (laughs) them I just think there's a sort of irreverence about her work again incredible seriousness but also absolute lightness and absurdity and risk-taking all the time she sort of she loves bodies she's fascinated by how bodies exist in culture and especially in sort of British culture and she's just going to play with that run with that so I find her work so enjoyable to look at yeah I mean what I find so interesting about Sarah Lucas actually just kind of revising for this interview just made me realize how in a sort of strange way maybe this is completely my uh, kind of um, take on it but she's really thinking about very traditional kind of genres of art so like the still life yeah. the self-portrait yeah. the nude and the way that she just strips the nude back and yeah. commenting on the history of the nude and how that nude has been portrayed and she's just saying this is actually what it is and this is how women's bodies have been seen for years and I mean how do you think she's commenting on this history of art through these bizarre and brilliant sculptures? I don't know if that's the approach that I take to it. I believe you, and I think it's true, but I think I respond to them in a much more immediate way. What they're saying to me is something about the history of how I inhabit my body, how people inhabit their bodies. That history feels more sort of present. What it's like to live in a body that's identified as female in the late 20th century and then the early 21st century, what kind of cultural stereotypes are you dodging all the time? It's almost like she makes those physical, three-dimensional sculptural objects that you can then get up and walk around. And that feels so... She has a genius for that. She has a genius for boiling down something that feels, to me, amorphous and often very toxic and making it into this elegant sort of bristly object that you go whoa that is that's it that's it that's the thing that's the thing that's been on my back all this time yeah that's the thing that actually that thing is kind of interesting and maybe it's quite sexy and maybe I can have a different more powerful relationship to it so that sense of god I mean I just think she's so good at it she is so (laughs) good at that sort of compression 
making something so large into something so tight and elegant and streamlined. Yeah. I mean, how does it make you feel when you are in front of one of those works? Embarrassed sometimes, amused, attracted, an immense sense of pleasure. I think especially those older ones like Bitch, where it's two melons and a kipper, the elegance of that, the sense that that has just been boiled down to absolutely (laughs) most basic parts. Basic parts feels like a very Sarah Lucas sort of phrase. She's working (laughs) with basic materials and she's saying basic things, but actually they're very subtle as well. Totally. And in your essay also in in Funny Weather, you really talk about this idea of power you know the word power keeps coming up you're aware that she possesses it both as an artist and a person and you say that she has a knack for making connections with strangers I mean how do you find that she possesses power I think she is one of the most charismatic people I've ever met and that charisma feels very powerful she has an ability to sort of she's almost inhabiting a slightly different reality to other people she's not playing those games that we're so caught up in of sort of being nice or trying to please she's she's free she's free she's probably one of the freest people I've ever met and that feels invigorating but also frightening there's something about it that you think wow I hadn't realized that you could just shake those things off and I don't think she even knows how unusual that is or how it feels to be around it's so uncompromising She's an artist, I think, that other artists are very inspired by because of that sense of freedom. And it's funny, I was looking back at that essay and I'd forgotten that she said how rarely she does interviews or exhibitions, that she doesn't like those senses of pressure, that she isn't working for money and fame. She's working to make work. She's working to think about things. And that as well feels so powerful when we're in a world where everything is driving towards money and fame. To not care so much feels thrilling. Yeah. I mean, how did you come to meet her? I was commissioned by the New York Times to do a profile of her. And we wrote to Sadie Coles and said, can we do it? And she had read The Trip to Echo Spring. She was friends with Gordon Byrne. And I think she judged the Gordon Byrne Prize the year it was up for it. So she was up for me coming over. And then I went to her house and we spent an evening again, talking and talking and talking. She's she's an amazing talker. What I find so interesting about this chapter, though, is the fact that because... I guess for me, the way I've seen Sarah Lucas is also through her art and that incredible self-portrait from 1996, self-portrait with eggs, where she's just looking so powerful. I mean, even just the way that the work, the way that's been exhibited is this kind of giant way or it's been a kind of more domestic style, but the way that the work is almost kind of coming in on you and you're like immediately drawn to her legs and that kind of powerful pose and everything. And what I found fascinating about your essay was the fact that actually, (laughs) in a strange way, she was also just a person as well. And the power that someone can exude and kind of portray from a self-portrait putting yourself out there in the world how do you want people to see that I mean what was your impression of then seeing that she was a human after having seen this such powerful work but I think also it there was a real stripping away process for doing that because I think my sense of Sarah Lucas initially was oh she's one of the YBA she's kind of mouthy she does those sort of grungy pictures yes I know who she is and Really, the first revelation was actually spending more time with her work before I even met her and realising how intelligent it was. I mean, she's so strangely written about because of that YBA moment, because of her relationship with Tracy Emin, because of the association with Damien Hirst, the big drinking, the sort of 90s lad culture. Yeah. 
that she's been sort of caught up in that in some way in the public imagination and it's kind of irrelevant I think maybe even it was irrelevant at the time but certainly now it's not really what her work is about and I don't think her work totally fits into that sort of YBA scene it feels in a lot of ways more inventive and more strange and then I think meeting her you know, she was smaller than I expected. (laughs) (laughs) You're right, that picture is often huge and intimidating. And, you know, there was this very open, warm presence. So that was nice. And also when you go to do an interview, you're never sure how open somebody's going to be. You're always a little bit uncertain of, okay, this is high stakes. I need to get something out of this exchange. (laughs) And will I? And when you realise that somebody is going to talk to you truly, that they're really going to talk to you, the relief of it is amazing. So when she was so open about her childhood and so reflective about what she's doing, that just felt, I respond very strongly to generosity. I think that's a thing that really links all of the artists and all of the essays in the book is that sort of sense of generosity. And I think she's a very generous artist. Yeah, I find also... I love in the book with the artists who are around now the fact that you actually even if it's you know visiting Prospect Cottage it's going to visit their environments I mean I love to do studio visits and to see where someone's Mm. lived and to see and to be honest anyone I'm so nosy but you know know, I think a sort of room or a, a studio or something can reveal so much about them yeah I mean if you think about Chantelle's studio you walk in and immediately you understand that she's obsessed with reading because there are books everywhere piled (laughs) up like the bottom of the sea but also the walls are covered in phrases that she's written or the names of books she wants to write or something that has kind of caught her attention so it's immediately visible almost like seeing inside somebody's mind you see what their preoccupations are you see what sort of culture in the larger sense they're emerging from and that feels very exciting I think it's really always relevant Mm, no totally I mean how is it kind of visiting I mean, we'll get into Anna Mendieta in a second, but how is it visiting people who are around now in their environment versus a sort of pilgrimage to someone who is no longer around environment? I think they both have sort of pitfalls and trickiness. I mean, when you're looking at, say, Henry Darger, the outsider artist who I wrote about in The Lonely City, I went to two spaces that were associated with him. One of them was the archive that had all of his possessions. But, you know, they're in boxes. You get the box out, you put your white gloves on and you look at these artefacts. They're treated in a sort of artefactal way. And then the other thing I did was go to the recreation of his room at Intuit, the Museum of Outsider Art in Chicago. And that's an amazing experience because in some ways it feels just as intimate as going into a studio but it's yeah. an invented space. It's recreation, and recreations are, as we know, Francis Bacon's room too, problematic. They've been yeah. made by somebody. They're historicising one moment of their life, and the sort of hierarchy of information you're being given is inevitably distorted. So mm. they're sort of problematic environments to visit, and you have to make sense of them. You have to choose how you're going to make sense of them. And I'm interested in my writing in trying to expose those tensions and the gaps between different versions more than I am in trying to smooth it all over and create one master version. I want to show that the process of understanding somebody's life is incredibly difficult. It's always going to have strands that contradict. 
Yeah. What I love about your writing sort of specifically is the fact that it is also kind of your viewpoint and you're also in the writing just as much as the artist, if that makes sense. You know, it's, it's coming from you in a very personal place. And I haven't read your Anna Mendieta essay because it's in your upcoming book, Everybody, which you've, have you now finished that? I have now finished it. I delivered it on Friday. <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. But you know, this is an obviously an artist who you would have not met due to her untimely death in 1985. And I'm Anna Mendieta is someone who I'm so intrigued by. And I've listened to kind of interviews with her niece and her sister. And I think in a strange way, I'm intrigued with her just as much as a person as her art. I mean, they're so, so intertwined, I guess, with her. She's there. It's very performative. It's about identity. I mean, when did you first discover Anna Mendieta's work? I think in the mid-90s, I had a boyfriend who was an artist and he introduced me to Joseph Boyce, Philip Guston and Anna Mendieta. What a great boyfriend. <laughs> great I boyfriend. Mean, I look back at that and I'm like, wow, you really did give me some great tools for future life. God, I really remember that. Like, wow, wow. They just blew my It's like mind. the music you learn as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... I don't think I knew the story. I don't think I knew her life story at that point. I was just immediately bowled over by the photographs of her underneath flowers, the photographs of the silhouettes. So these images of bodies burning, of the shapes of bodies being inundated by water, that sort of image just really spoke to me on a deep level. So I, I loved that. And then at some point, I can't remember when, I learned the story of what had happened to her. And when I started writing this book about bodies, I was very interested in writing about violence. And she was an obvious person to to put in it. But at the same time, I could see that there were huge pitfalls. And one of the things that's so difficult, and I think having written about Virginia Woolf is a really good training ground for this. So when people write about Woolf, there's a real tendency to look back the entirety of her life through the lens of what happened to her, the suicide, and yeah. to see everything leading towards that. And that infuriated me when I was writing about yeah. Wolf because until the moment you die, your life is streaming with potential. There are many different yeah. ways you could go. And then something happens. So I think having had that experience and having done that work, it sort of put me in a better place for trying to think about Anna Mendieta, who is somebody who she died in... I'm putting this in inverted commas, mysterious circumstances. Yeah. It was considered possible that her husband had murdered her. There was a trial. He was found not guilty. And during that trial, her own work was deputised against her. His defence lawyer used her work to say, well, she obviously was thinking about being a body smashed on a roof. Look, it's in her oh paintings. Oh, my gosh. So this is genuinely what a defence lawyer said in the trial. Oh, and my God. That sense of... This person who is working with violence, untimely death, what happens to women in the world, Yeah. then ending like that and then it's saying, well, you were heading towards that rather than you were reporting on the circumstances of the world which also affected you. That's a terrifying story. Oh my goodness. I wasn't aware of that. That's absolutely horrific. But I think, you know, what Anna Mendieta does so well in her work is she, I mean, what kind of baffles me as well with her work is the fact that I mean she made so much in such a short amount of time and so much strong yeah. work as well and the fact that the silhouettes or the pressed glass on face or the yeah. the rape or the self-portrait but it was all made in the 70s and it feels unbelievably relevant now 
Yeah, and it's so interesting how people are starting to get very, very excited about her again because she's such a great artist for this moment, this Me Too moment, this sense that people are really trying to reckon again as they were in the 70s with violence against women and with just the role of women's lives. So the thing that I'd been particularly interested in lately was the rape piece, which she made when yeah. she was an art student. It's yeah. ex- I mean, <laughs> she, she was on her MA. <laughs> she is so talented. And it's, it's always funny when you're dealing with artists who die young. It's the same with Francesca Woodman, that sense of how are we treating this and are we making too much of it? And is it some way sort of sentimentally caught up with untimely death and young women's untimely death? But I think if we knew nothing about Anna Mendieta, we would still see the power of those works, the sort of ingenuity of them, the sense that she's moving into new ground all the time. And the rape piece in particular is just, it's so bold. She yeah. reenacts the rape of a nursing student that happened in the University of Iowa campus. And she invites her fellow students to come and see. And she stays there for an hour in this position as this raped and murdered body and documents it in photographs. And what's interesting about them is that they're not about victimhood. They are furious. She is co-opting yep. you to look at it. She's making you implicated. She's rubbing your nose in it. And I think that fury is what really makes it great art. It's not that she's just saying a bad thing happened, help. She's saying, fucking look at this. And yeah. you can't look away. You absolutely yeah. can't. And you're pulled into it in such a sort of complicated way. Totally. I mean, it's just so confronting as well and I mm. think you know other than the life story which happens at the end even just from the beginning it's incredibly sad age just 12 she's sent away from Cuba I mean what happens here so the Castro regime came in her father fell out with Castro he was put in a prison camp and just before he was put in a prison camp they got the girls out and on these Peter Pan flights which huge amounts of Cuban children were sent out to America being told that there'd be, A, homes that they'd be looked after in good Catholic homes and also that their parents would join them. And the reality was that there were no homes. They were put in orphanages and their parents often didn't join them for another decade. So from going from a very wealthy, privileged, loving background, she suddenly absolutely cast out into a brutal world, a brutal white world. And I think that sort of trauma is something that is always at play in her work. Definitely. What do you think she's kind of saying about identity through these Silhouetta works? She says this lovely thing. And it's, again, another tricky thing is she didn't say very much. And so we're reliant we're more than you would normally be on these small phrases that she left. But she does say this lovely thing about she was torn away and she's trying all the time to bed herself back in, to put herself back into the earth and to sort of heal that sense of rift not just from her family but from her native country to this other foreign place where she's experiences racism for the first time where she's cold all the time she's in Iowa it's not warm yeah there's sort of sense of an irreparable and this is what I'm so excited about in art an irreparable (laughs) thing happened and she is trying to mend it in some way she's making something that tries to deal with that. And it's not just personal. It's not just narcissistic. It's not just for her. It's for us too. And I think when you look at those work, it awakes in you all of your own feelings about displacement or homelessness in many different emotional ways. So they feel to me like 
they hold so much. Totally. I think what's also so powerful about her land art as well is the fact that it's sort of coming back to Chantelle as well. And, you know, you saying her work's almost kind of like shredded skin, the, mm. these portraits that just encapsulate a time. And I think especially kind of Anna Mendieta's land art, they are these kind of ephemeral Mm. works that have this universal that. energy and they speak to universal experience and and she's rooting them into her existence but also it's a female body you know the beautiful one with the body that's lowered down with the flowers on it you know it doesn't yeah. even have her face on it it could really be anyone and it's just about how we move ephemerally throughout the world yeah the the energy of mortality is in them but at the same time there's something they're so Humble is a funny word, but they are so humble that she's making these things and allowing them to dissolve and to be effaced feels like such an interesting impulse in the history of art making that people generally are making art so that it stays around for a long time and gives them some sense of glory. And she's not. She's making these things. And the point is that they go, that they're reclaimed and the act of them being reclaimed, washed over by the sea, weeds growing through them is part of the art making. And I think that sort of sense of... She says another lovely thing that she destroyed all of her paintings quite early in the 70s. And she said, they're just not doing what I want them to do. I want to make something real and magic. And working with nature, working with the world was a way for her to do that, for it to have a kind of power that extends beyond her biography and her own body into something far larger. Yeah, absolutely. And I think coming back to what we were saying at the beginning and being in this strange time that we're kind of situated at the moment, I feel like we can really learn from each of these artists about kind of what's happening. Absolutely, absolutely. And also about how to necessarily withstand but handle what's happening. They're artists that are unflinching in their gazes. They're not looking away. They're not cowed by what they see. They're not, think of Chantal looking at her unhappy face day after day. They're not cowed by the sense of a painful reality. They keep going and they keep making something. And to me, that spirit is just the most important thing, that willingness to keep reinventing and keep looking. Yeah. No, I think also, I feel like the artists we've discussed today, they're so unapologetic, you know, even though themselves are sort of at the front of it, sort of physically, it's not about them and it's not this narcissistic thing. It's this kind of unapologetic, universal energy that they're giving us. Yeah, their bodies are resources, their life experiences are resources, and they're going to use those resources, but it isn't about them. I think that's absolutely true. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. This was just the most interesting conversation. I'm completely amazed and want to go back and do so much research. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests, what would they say to their chosen artist? But since you know Sarah Lucas and Chantal Joffe, if Anna Mendieta were around, or may- may perhaps you were around in the 70s, what would you say to her? Don't marry Carl Andre. Yeah. I'm sorry, that is literally it. Don't do yeah. that. Oh, God. Totally, totally. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. This was such a treat. Oh, thank you. such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 25th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the absolutely sensational Olivia Lang. It was such an incredible insight to hear her thoughts on those three artists. And if you do want to explore more, I would highly recommend her collection of essays, Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency, which is out now published by Picador. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 